Well, that's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That it's possible to go from being an enemy of God to being welcome at His table. How's that happen? Do we have to clean up our act first? We have to get everything straightened out. We have to do a bunch of, of good works. And then if we can earn enough merit before the Lord, uh, then we're welcome at His table. Uh, no, 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 no. Why, why is that not possible? Well, it's because He's holy, right? He's perfect. And um, there's no way that you and I in our own strength could possibly clean up our act. That, that's not going to happen. That, that's not going to happen. Um, it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's only by trusting Christ as Savior and Lord and allowing Him to forgive you by His grace. Not, not by our works, but by His grace and, and, and by His mercy. And then His Spirit begins working in and through us. And progressively over time, we can become more like Jesus Christ. But that happens after we, we've trusted Him as Savior. So I hope there's been a definite time where you've done that. And, and if there has... If there has, if you're on that, that process of growing and changing in response to His grace, then, then what's just the, the natural uh, words that we would have to say to Him this morning? Well, it's thank you. It's thank you. So I'm so glad that you've come this morning. My name's Steve Ayers. I have the privilege of serving as one of our pastors, and I have the joy of rotating from various campuses. So last Sunday I was speaking at Faith West. Um, Lord willing, next Sunday I'll be at Faith East. And so I, I get here generally about once a month, and it's just amazing to come back and see what the Lord does. It's, it's amazing how God is at work right here. And um, so if you're relatively new, I'm so glad that you're here. If you just started coming, you've been coming for several weeks, we're, we're so glad. And if you're wondering what we think about you, here's the answer. You're an answer to our prayer. That's exactly what you are. You're a gift from God to us. And if you say, well, but you, if you knew this about me or you knew that, no, no, no. There's nothing that you could put on the table that, that would make me change that answer. We, we, we've prayed that God would give us um, people that we could worship with here at the North End on a Sunday morning, and here you are. Here you are. So um, thank you very, very much for coming this morning. Hey, if I asked you to list the most admirable characters in the Old Testament... Who, who would you name? And there's a lot of candidates for, for sure about that, but I don't think it would be long for many of us. Before we would mention a man named Boaz, his story is told in the wonderful little book of Ruth, and that's where we learn about the important biblical theme of someone being a kinsman redeemer. You may remember if you studied the Word of God that that story unfolds in the days when the judges governed. That period of time is summarized in Judges 21-25, sadly. In those days, there was no king in Israel, so everybody just did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, it was in that setting that a Jewish woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons, that they left Bethlehem. You've heard of Bethlehem, right? In the land of Judah, and they went to sojourn in the land of Moab because of a severe famine. And while they were there, sadly, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Well, her two sons marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other one named who? Yeah, named Ruth, that's exactly right. And then the two sons passed away, and neither of their wives had conceived children. So, so now we have three widows, a Jewish mother-in-law, 
and two daughters-in-law. None of them had husbands. And then they heard that the famine had subsided back in Bethlehem where Naomi was from, so they, they decided to head back there together. But at some point in that journey, Naomi, the, the Jewish mother-in-law, sits down with her two now Moabite daughters-in-law, and she says, you ought to go back to Moab and to be with your people and to be with your gods. One of the key verses is Ruth 1.9, where Naomi said, may the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And what's curious and maybe even scandalous about that is that Naomi, again, the Jewish mother-in-law, admits that by them doing so, they would be returning to their own gods. And apparently that doesn't matter much to Naomi because one of the daughters-in-law actually takes her up on the offer. And so Naomi actually tries to persuade Ruth to do the same thing. She said, now listen to this. Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to who? To her gods. Do the same thing. Return after your sister-in-law. In other words, your hopes in finding a man, regardless of what he believes, regardless of who his God is, and about now any old man will do, which tells us she was functioning as an individual the way Israel was functioning as a nation. That's the clear point of all of this. See, everybody is just doing right what was right in their own eyes. Well, in an amazing contrast, see, you would have expected the Jewish mother-in-law to be the one who was most spiritually mature, right? But in contrast to that and her, her terrible view of God at the moment, you have this little young Moabitess daughter-in-law named Ruth, and here's what she says. Don't urge me to leave you, Naomi, or turn back from following you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people, the Jews... Your people will be my people. And most importantly, what? Yeah, your God will be my God. Ruth believed that the God of Israel, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, was capable of being faithful to her. And so she said, I'm going to choose to be faithful to him. Well, unfortunately, Naomi, as that chapter continues to unfold, chooses the path of bitterness And so when they got back to the city of Bethlehem where she was from, some of the women of the city said, hey, aren't you Naomi? Do you remember what she said? She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. What's that mean? Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. Can you imagine that? If you said, the one word that defines my existence, that defines my identity is bitter. Why? Because here's her view of God. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. Now, wait a minute. When she went out, it was during a time of what? What's that tell you? If you don't have a right view of God and you decide to become a person of bitterness, it's going to eventually twist your thinking, my friends. It'll make a liar out of you every time. She said, I went out full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. What's wrong with that? Who's standing right next to her? Yeah, her sweet daughter-in-law, she said, Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the, the Almighty has afflicted me? So many lessons right there. Well, then in the next chapter, and by the way, isn't it amazing that there is a next chapter? Because if some of us were God, if somebody spoke that way about us, what would you be reading next? 
bam, there was a lightning bolt, and that was the end of Naomi. Aren't you glad we're not God? Aren't you glad he's a God of what? He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy, even when people are spitting in his face. So in the very next chapter, Ruth asked permission, said there was a time of the barley harvest, to go glean in the fields according to the provisions in the Old Testament for people who were poor. And, and what the Bible tells us is she just so happened, that's exactly the way it's written in the Bible. It's, it's, it, the writer's kind of teasing us. She, she just so happened to come to the fields of a man named Boaz. There's, there's our guy, Boaz, who was actually a relative of her deceased father-in-law and therefore his sons, including her husband. Now, now I, I realize some of you are brand new to the Bible. You might not be getting all of this. That, that's Okay. You'll get this. In our culture, we might say, well, that's convenient. Maybe a, a relative will show her some treatment and give her a job. Wait, wait a minute. In that culture, and remember, we always interpret the Bible first in the culture in which it occurred. That, that's very, so we don't Americanize the Bible. We, we start with the culture in which it occurred. The fact that this Boaz man was a near relative of Ruth's deceased husband, would have set off all sorts of alarm bells, in this case, in a very, very joyful sense. Why? But because the Old Testament had very specific provisions for people in Ruth and Naomi's position. People who were widows and people who were poor in two very important senses. One was the, the law of the goel or the kinsman redeemer. Lock onto that, the kinsman redeemer. And we read about that in Leviticus 25, 25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman relative is to come, and, and remember this right here, buy back what his relative has sold. Now, if you want to read more about that, you can read the verses after that in Leviticus, or you could go to Deuteronomy 27. Now, now the second provision, and this is going to sound odd to you if you're not used to studying the Bible, it was the, the, the issue of leveret marriage. So what, what was that? <laughs> Hold on to your seats if you've never heard of this from Scripture. Here's what Deuteronomy 25 says about that. When brothers live together, and one of, you remember, you realize in that culture, people, families would, would live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn, if they have a baby, the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother. That's the point. So that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man, this near relative, does not desire to take up his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me, a kinsman redeemer. Then the elders of the city shall summon this man and speak to him. If he persists and says, I don't desire to take her, then his brother's wife, listen to this, picture this, shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off of his foot, and spit in his face. And shall there declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. 
and who also got a good spitting in the face. Now, I realize you might hear all that and say, yuck! I mean, yuck! Which is probably not the best response to God's provision in His um, Word for His people. So you might want to reel the yuck back in. But I realize that's very, very hard for us, at least most of us, to, 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 to um, relate to the difficult position that Naomi and Ruth were in. Most of us have not experienced a famine or, or the possibility of our land being sold in our family's name or potential for livelihood just to be completely extinguished. So these women are in dire straits. But here's what happens. Don't forget this. In chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, as Naomi, this mother-in-law, watches God bless both she and Ruth through this kinsman redeemer, this man named Boaz, because chapter 2 is filled with barley. These women go from a famine to be swimming in barley through the generosity of this kinsman redeemer. Here's what you see happening. Naomi's bitterness starts to melt. That's one of the beauties of this book. And even if you're here this morning and would say, boy, I'm really struggling with bitterness. Listen, the message of the Bible is you don't have to live there forever. That's what happens in the book of Ruth chapter 2. Because all, Naomi, she's watching God bless and God bless and God bless. And you say, how do you know that for sure? Here's the answer. Keep reading. Because when you get to chapter 3, Naomi the Jewish mother-in-law has an incredible plan. You remember what it was? She says to Ruth, I want you to go down to Boaz tonight, tonight. He'll be on the threshing floor, and I want you to encourage him to consider being your kinsman redeemer of marrying you. Now, how in the world did Naomi go from a person who was saying all kinds of negative things about God to trusting in him like that? The answer is people can change. That's exactly what happened. And so if you study the rest of that in the Bible, you find this. She does it. Ruth does what Naomi suggests that she do, and this man, Boaz, so now picture it. It's in the middle of the night. Ruth has placed herself under his robes, and nothing sexual about it. She just, and you say, well, well, why did it work that way? Because Boaz was so old, he probably wouldn't have asked first. So, so somebody, had to, somebody had to break the law, Jim. Somebody had to, to make the first move. And here, you remember, if you studied the Bible, here's what happened next. This Boaz man says, well, you're right, I am a near relative, but there's actually another guy who's closer than me. And you say, oh, we don't want to hear about a guy closer than you. We want it to be, but we want it to be Boaz. But that tells you something too, because we went from chapter one with Naomi, any old God will do, now to chapter three with this man, Boaz. No, we're going to do it right. We're going to do it according to the Word of God. So we have to give this other guy an opportunity to be the kinsman redeemer first. And that part of the story happens really fast. Because the very next day, Boaz goes to the city gates. And this closer relative um, comes. And here's what he says. He says, well, I can't do it. I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it, he says to Boaz, for yourself, for um, you may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, how would you describe that guy? We'd have all kinds of bad words to describe a guy like that who's more concerned about himself than serving this young Moabitess widow named Ruth, right? But that clears up now for Boaz to do it. And here's what we read. And here's the point. If you say, you're losing me, Pastor Byers, come back to this. Here's our man, Boaz, and here's exactly what he says. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses today that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malion. Moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malion, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. That's what the Bible said this process was for. So that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses today. And you're left cheering, screaming. This is as good as when Purdue beats IU. Although, frankly, right now, IU is having such a bad season, I think we probably shouldn't even tease them anymore, right? But, but you know what it's like. You're, you're screaming and cheering. And you think this. Could there ever, here's where you are in the book of Ruth. Could there ever be a better redeemer than this? Could there ever be a, a, a kinder redeemer than this? Could there ever be a more gracious redeemer than this? And what's the answer to those questions? Well, well, yes, there could. He's the one to whom this entire story is pointing, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and for people like you and me, people who were in a spiritual sense were far more hungry far more impoverished, far more enslaved than Ruth and Naomi were. What we potentially have in the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the perfect kinsman redeemer. With that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bible this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. That's in the back section of your Bible in the New Testament on page 150. So Ephesians chapter 1 or page 150. And 50 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. It's already been mentioned that our, our church's theme is building on our heritage. We are right on top in the month of February, right on top of our church's 60th anniversary. And God in His grace has given us a wonderful heritage. There's no doubt about that. The question we're considering this year is, well, what does it look like for us, people like you and me? It's our turn. So, so what does it look like for people like you and me to build on that heritage wisely, to, to build on that heritage well. And in these early months of 2024, we're working very slowly and methodically through Ephesians chapter 1. We're talking about remembering our identity as one in Christ. I'd like to read Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 1, but look especially at what it says about the matter of redemption. And there's two places that redemption comes up in this marvelous passage of Scripture. So Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and, and blameless before Him. 
In love, he predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. Now, now here we go. In him we have what? Think Boaz. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory." In Him, and you see that phrase over and over, in Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, here's our second use of redemption. Who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to what? Think Boaz, to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. What an incredible passage of Scripture. And we're thinking this morning about how you're redeemed. If there's been a definite time in your life where you've trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, the great news, my friends, is you have been redeemed. And with the time we have remaining, let's think about, well, what should we do about that? The four responses to Jesus being willing to be your kinsman, redeemer. The first one is this, acknowledge man's need of redemption. Now, now what I said a moment ago about the importance of considering the Bible's historical context in reference to the book of Ruth, that's equally important when thinking about Paul's use of the word redemption in the book of Ephesians. There are two primary original words in the New Testament that that are translated by redeem or or redemption. So I say, what does that actually mean? One of them is the Greek word agorazo. That comes from a word agora or marketplace. So, so whenever you have that word for redeem, it's emphasizing buying something back. Like in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's the emphasis. A price had to be paid to, to buy us or to, to free us from the curse of the law. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And frankly, If that's all redemption was, somebody paid something to buy us back, that'd be a lot. That'd be a lot. But in Scripture, it's even stronger than that because there's also a second word. It's latruo, which means to release you from captivity. And one writer said it like this, paying a ransom in order to release a person from bondage, especially that of slavery. And that writer went on to say this, I really want to encourage you to think about this. During New Testament times, the Roman Empire had as many as six million slaves, and the buying and selling of them was a major business. Imagine if you were enslaved. If a person wanted to free a loved one or a friend who was a slave, he would do what? Hear this. He would buy that slave for himself. Imagine somebody doing that. He would buy that slave for himself and then grant him freedom. Can you imagine that? Testifying to the deliverance by a written certificate Lutruo, that word that's translated redeem in the Bible, was used to designate the freeing of a slave in that way. 
that is, and please lock onto this sentence, that is precisely the idea carried in the New Testament use of the term to represent Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. He paid the redemption price to buy for himself fallen mankind and to set them free from their sin. That's what redemption is. Now, that's one of the major challenges, though, in the day and age in which we live. See, only a person convinced of his or her enslavement would be motivated to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith in order to secure their marvelous and their miraculous redemption. See, do you really believe that human beings need to be redeemed? That was Paul's point to the the Romans and what many people consider to be the very heart of the gospel right here. For all have sinned. You agree with that? Did you see the all part? So who would that include? Does that include Pastor Hutton? Yeah, yeah. Pastor Mora? Yeah, 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 yeah. Pastor Gomez? Yeah, 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 yeah. Every last one of you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody else we had to put in that equation? Pastor Virus as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do, do you believe that, friends? We, we were all enslaved. Do you believe that? We, we all had a price that needed to be paid for all of sin and called, fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the, here it is, the re, somebody had to buy us back. Somebody had to free us through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a a satisfaction, a propitiation of His blood through faith. Now listen to this. This was to demonstrate my righteousness. Did I read that right? Is salvation to demonstrate my righteousness, how good I am? No. This was to demonstrate your righteousness. How would I do on that? No. This was to demonstrate whose righteousness, my friends? Yet God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness so that he would be just. How so? The price did get paid. Could I get a mm-hmm on that? How is it that God is just in our salvation? The price got paid. But how was he also merciful? Because he was the one who was willing to pay it through the death of his son. And here's the question. It's rather simple, but it's straightforward, and it's for every last one of us. Have you acknowledged, and do you acknowledge, man's need of redemption? And I'm happy to tell you that clearly the forefounders of this church did. They did. It's remarkable that within two years of the launch of this church, our forebearers were constructing their first permanent facility. So this church started in February of 1964 with five families, five, scooped off from Kasoo Street, our mother church, who sent a group of their members out to plant a brand new church. Within two years, they were building their first permanent facility. That's now the home of Second Baptist Church on South 18th Street. That was Faith's first building within two years. On January, in January of 1967, so they had already moved into the building, but in January of 1967, before their third anniversary, they were having a dedication service. We have the program from that dedication service. And part of the dedication service was what they termed an act of dedication. And what that meant was that it was a responsive reading. 
So the pastor read some words, and then the congregation had to decide if they agreed with that. Were, were you going to dedicate yourself to that? Here's some of those words, and think about how this ties in with redemption. The pastor said, to the purpose of maintaining worship in accordance with our belief in a verbally inspired and hence infallible Bible. And you might say, why is that important? Those were fighting words in 1967, my friends, because we were having a battle for the Bible. And there were all sorts of people in this world, all sorts of people in this country, in fact, all sorts of people right here in Tippecanoe County who were mocking the Bible and undermining the Bible and ridiculing the Bible and pulling things out of the Bible that, that they didn't like or didn't appeal to their modern sensibilities. People here and people over there across that river. You understand what I'm talking about? And so that group of people, they had to decide right there in public, are we going to say we disagree with, with those who are ridiculing the Word of God? Do we agree that God has given us in His Word a book that is inspired and hence infallible? And I wish we had a tape. I wish we had a tape. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure they said it loudly. We dedicate this church to that. And then the pastor said this, to the preaching of the gospel, which is the good news of what? The goodness of man. How we're good enough to earn salvation of our own merit. Is that what it was? No, 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 no. To the preaching of the gospel, which is the good news of the, the substitutionary death. Why? Why? Because we had to be, we had to be what? We had to be redeemed. We had to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And think of it. In 1967, you got all these people who are thinking, oh, well, a man is good enough to earn salvation by his own merit. And you got this little group of people deciding what they're going to believe. Are they going to stake their life, and are they going to stake their eternal destiny on what the Word of God says about our need for redemption? And that group of people said, you better believe it. We dedicate this church to, it doesn't matter what, what people across the river might say about that, we're dedicating this church to this. And, and then, think of it, little group of people, little group of people, and they had the audacity not only to say, and we're going to proclaim this message of the shed blood of Jesus Christ around Tippecanoe County or, or around mid-central India. You, you know what that group of people said? This pastor, Rowland Reed, he said to the proclamation of the same gospel to where? To the uttermost part of the, seriously, 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 to the uttermost part of the earth? And what did that group of people say? We dedicate this church. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had that biblical counseling training conference. Where were people from who came to that conference? Tippecanoe County? Huh? Not just Tippecanoe County. State of Indiana? Yeah, all over the state of Indiana. Other states, practically every state in the United States was represented at that conference a couple of weeks ago. But not just that. Foreign country after foreign country after foreign country after foreign what, What's that? That's how powerful our God is. And that's how much He can use a, a, a group of people who want to dedicate themselves to the truth that God's people must be redeemed. I mentioned that this biblical counseling conference, one of our doctrinal distinctives is that mankind's greatest need is a separation from a holy God because of our sin. 
And that's not to suggest that every person's problem is a direct result of their individual sin. It's not to say that there's not the existence of innocent suffering in this world. But, but please don't miss this. Our view of counseling suggests this. None of us are passive victims. We're all active worshipers. And the way we respond to either sinning or being sinned against is to run to whom? To run to our Redeemer in repentance and faith. So many of the world's counseling systems, they want to place responsibility on everybody else. And so the counselors become like these priests in Hebrews, standing daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never do what? There's no redemption, that there's no Jesus, therefore there's no hope. And I would just say over and over, beware of any counseling system that fails to quickly and comprehensively acknowledge man's need of redemption because our enslavement is real and our enslavement is undeniable. And if you're going to counseling somewhere and all they do is talk about it, how everybody else is so bad... And there's no mention of the Bible. There's no mention of Jesus Christ. There's no mention of redemption. I need to love you enough to tell you you're going to the wrong counselor. And that's why this church is doing what we're doing in that particular area. It's because of redemption. So acknowledge the need. Secondly, marvel at the extent of your redemption. See, if you're willing to repent and turn around, that's what repentance means, to go from pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency to truly acknowledging, I had to be redeemed. Well, what do we find as the proposed solution? And I want you really to lock on to that phrase, a personal, personal relationship with a, a God who loves you. Now, think about this. This may be one of the reasons that the book of Ruth is in the Bible. What? Why? To help us personalize the transaction of biblical redemption. Some of you, probably not many, but some of you are probably old enough to remember this name, J. Vernon McGee. Anybody here old enough? He was a radio preacher. Anybody here old enough to remember? J, he had a very distinct, you could probably Google it and hear some sermon by J. He had a very, very distinctive vo- voice for sure. Did you know he wrote a book on Ruth? He did. And here's why I love this title. He titled it The Romance of Redemption. Now, pause and think about that. Very, very important. The the, the romance of redemption. And here's the way the book was described. The story of Ruth, the Gentile maid from Moab, is a powerful and passionate portrayal of pure love, the devoted love of Ruth for her Hebrew mother-in-law, Naomi, the romantic love between Ruth and Boaz, and the redemptive love of God. Exactly, exactly. And did you notice when I was reading through Ephesians 1... We've been focusing especially on verse 7, but what's right at the end of verse 6? Where are we? We're in the the beloved. That's what Paul said to the Romans, to all who are are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Now, Now, here's what I'm saying to you, friends. We're not talking this morning about an impersonal payment or transaction made by somebody who barely knows or cares about you. What I'm trying to suggest to us this morning is what Boaz was to Ruth, God wants to be to you. What what Boaz, think of the love story. What Boaz was to Ruth, 
God wants to be to you. When I became a, a Christian in my senior year of high school, uh, not long after that, my church began encouraging me to think about becoming a pastor. So I submitted myself to their authority. They evaluated my character, my, my giftedness, and they encouraged me to consider becoming a pastor. Well, the challenge was I was my father's only son. My dad was not a believer at that time. And uh, my dad already had a plan for my life. I was going to be an accountant. So I was going to go to Northwestern University in Chicago, and I was going to become an, That was the plan. And the reason was because he thought I then could be rich. That, that was his point. And I realize some of you may work in accounting and say, well, it doesn't work that way. Well, that's my dad's plan. I was going to go to Northwestern. I was going to get a great degree. I was going to become an accountant, and I was going to be rich. And so when I came to my father and I said, Dad, um, listen, you know I've become a Christian now, and um, I, I really think God wants me to become a pastor. My, my, my dad, and he was not a mean man. My dad was not a mean man. He was a practical man. And he said, well, you'd be wasting your life if you became a pastor. That, that, that is his exact words. Not long after that, I had to come to him and say, Dad, um, listen, um, I, I'm not going to Northwestern University. I think God wants me to go to a little Bible college up in northeastern Pennsylvania, Baptist Bible College of Clarkson. That's where I'm going to be going to school. And my dad said, exact words, only a fool would do that. Only a fool would do that. And if you do that, you're on your own. You're, my money's not going to pay for you to go to a Bible college. And again, he went mad. Frankly, I think he was disappointed. He was disappointed that his only son was going to become a fool. A, a pastor. That, that's the way he viewed it. Well, I was in trouble then, right? Because how in the world am I going to pay for my school? How am I going to do that? And at the time, right at the end of my senior year, I was working at a health club up in Merrillville. You may remember those two gold towers at the intersection of I-65 and, and Route 30. There used to be a health club in the bottom floor, the basement of the North Tower, Admiral's Health Club. That's where I worked. And um, I, I made essentially minimum wage, which wasn't much. And I started doing the math, and I figured out if I saved every nickel I made at that health club between then and when I was supposed to head off to Bible college, I still would not have enough money. How in the world am I going to pay for that? One day I'm at work, and, and I got a call from a friend who, who worked at a, a pool store, a place that sold um, and installed pools. And he said, hey, um, we need a laborer on our pool crew, but here's the deal. You have to start tomorrow. I was actually at work at the health club when I got that call. And so I went to my boss at the health club and I said, hey, they're offering me a construction job where I could make more money potentially. What do you think? And my boss at the health club said, well, listen, that's too good to pass up. Go try it. And then he said, if it doesn't work out, you can come back and continue to work here, which is incredibly gracious. So I went there the very next day and I met the owner of that company, a Jew, an elderly Jewish man. And he's driving me in his Cadillac, first time I'd ever been in a Cadillac, driving me in his Cadillac um, to the first job, and he was just asking me about my story, and I explained I'd just become a Christian. I thought God wanted me to become a pastor. I needed to save money in order to get through Bible college. And um, that week on Saturday, um, he came back to the job site, and he pulled me over to the side, and he said, listen, um, here, here's what I've decided to do. I'm going to pay you $5 an hour. Now, back then, that was pretty good money. Wasn't great money, but that was pretty good money. And he said, then he said, and if you, um, uh, you can work as many hours as you want, 
Now that really got my attention because I'm thinking $5 times as many hours as I can work. Okay, now we're, now we're getting somewhere. And then he said this, if you stay with me all summer long, when you go back to college, I'm going to give you a $1,000 bonus to help pay for your Bible college education. Now, I know in this day and age, $1,000 is probably not much, right? So if I said, hey, somebody dropped $1,000 over there, you probably wouldn't even go over there to get it for only $1,000. But, but back then, <laughs> some of you are saying, where is it? <laughs> back then, I'm going to tell you right now, $1,000, that, that was a whole lot of, of money for sure. And, and you know what? The more I got to know him, here's the point of that story, the more amazed I was, but just the way he chose to love me, just because he wanted to. And what I'm saying to us this morning is, friend, marvel at the extent of your redemption. What Boaz was to Ruth, God wants to be to you. And, of course, in some ways, that's just the, the beginning of the story because we're not talking about $1,000 here. We're talking about a payment that's much more precious than gold. What's the centerpiece of our verse in Ephesians 1-7? In Him we have redemption, what? Through His blood. Peter said it this way, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with what? With precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the, the blood of Christ. Aren't you glad that a, a central part of the heritage on which we're called now to build is that? As far as I know, practically every month for the last 60 years, this church family has paused and done what? Celebrated the, the Lord's table. Do this in remembrance of me thinking about the precious blood of our Lord. We believe, like the writer of Hebrews believes, all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood that there's no forgiveness. That's why our church has historically sung songs like this, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Do you? I do. I hope you do too. Redeemed, here it is, by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and, and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. By the way, are you? And you might say, i got a lot of problems going on. You know what? I have a few myself. I have a few myself. But we can still have joy in Christ if we've been redeemed. Do you believe that? Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of his presence with me doth continually dwell. I, I think of my blessed Redeemer. Do you? you got to decide what you're going to think about. You can think about this. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing. I sing for I cannot be silent. Is that, is that why, by the way, when somebody pulls up next to you at the stoplight and they look over at you and they give you kind of the hairy eyeball, why? Because your mouth is moving and there ain't nobody in the car. And they have no idea what, what's going on with you. What is going on with you? You're singing right then, aren't you? You're singing a song about your Redeemer. Yeah. And you might say, Pastor, I know, but it doesn't sound very good. Let, let me tell you right now, regardless of how you think it sounds, it sounds beautiful to Jesus. You, you know that? I hope you say, I sing for I can't be silent. His love is the, the theme of my song. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and 
and giveth me songs in the night. And I realize some of you might say, Pastor Bryce, right now I'm kind of in a nighttime in my life. I got some serious stuff going on right now. I know you, you may be. But, but listen, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed his child and, and forever I am. So acknowledge man's need and, and marvel at the extent and rejoice in the effects of your redemption. You know, the title that we, we chose for this particular section of Scripture is Remembering Our Identity as One in Christ. That's a very important way of thinking about this book. The first three chapters are all about our identity, who we are in Christ, the gospel indicatives. The last three chapters are about what we're supposed to do as a result, the gospel imperatives. And part of the, the, these first three chapters are organized around this little phrase, in Him, in Him, in Him. And I want to pause right now, and I want to ask every person here a question. Are you sure that you've been redeemed? Has there been a definite time in your life where you've admitted your need and you've placed your faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord? And if you would say this morning, I'm not sure that's ever happened to me. I'm not sure I've been redeemed. L listen, listen. We want to talk to you badly. Badly. You can name the place. You can name the time. And we will happily sit down with the Word of God and help you come to know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. And please don't think, well, you're too busy to... Th no, I'm not. There's all kinds of stuff, in there, and maybe they're important things. I'll cancel them right now this week because talking to you about that is more important than a lot of other stuff i got to do. And our service pastors would say the exact same thing. It's possible to know for sure that you've been redeemed, but that's a decision that's made at a point in time. And if you're not sure you've made it, let's sit down with the Word of God and get you to the place where you can absolutely know that for sure. And think about all of the, the effects and I, and I know, I just looked at my watch, it's like, wow, that went fast, but, but at least for me. But what are some of the effects? You're freed from sin's power. Did, do you realize that? That's part of your redemption. A price had to be paid to free you. And you might say, oh, Pastor, I, I got so many ways I'm still messing up. Well, you know what? I've got some too. I, I, I've got some too. I'm far from perfect. That surprise anybody, that surprise anybody in this room? I didn't think so. I, I didn't think so. But, but you know what? Think about where you are right now. You realize you're in a church right now. You, you, you got yourself up, regardless of how you felt. You came over to the Lord's house on the Lord's day, and you've been singing praise to Him. And then you listen to a long, dry sermon from the Bible, from some old guy. What, what, what's that? What's that? that? That very well may be evidence of what? Of your redemption. We've been transferred from the world system. That, that's part of it, too. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's why many of us would say, this world is just not my home. I don't embrace the world's philosophies and values and core ideologies. Why? Because I've been redeemed from that. I've been released from guilt and shame. Hear this, hear this. I mentioned this verse a moment ago, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and we've never gotten over that. That's why we do so much community-based outreach around here. Why? Why? Because we want as many of our friends and neighbors as possible to be able to experience that same freedom. No more guilt. No more shame. Why? Because of the powerful blood of… You realize, because I messed up some this week. Anybody else here mess up some this week? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, so does that mean God the Father is looking down at me in light of my failures? Steve, you stink. No, 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 no. God the Father looks down at me clothed in the righteousness of his Son. Why? Because I've been, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I don't have to walk around in guilt and shame. We've been protected from legalistic demands it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't be subject. And listen, if we're honest about it, faith's had some legalism from time to time. It's hard not to fall into legalism, but we try not to. We, we, we try not to. Why? Because we've been redeemed. Think about this. We've even been delivered from the fear of death. And I know those are powerful words, especially for some in this room right now. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, we have bodies, Jesus himself took the same. He took a body too. Why? So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might, hear it, redeem. He might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, I'm starting my 37th year here. Can you believe that? 37 years. What that means, by the way, that means when you get to heaven... God is going to give you a huge crown. It's a special crown for those who had to endure my ministry this long. I mean, it's going to be huge, huge. But, but that does say something about God's patience, right, and our church family's graciousness, no, no doubt about that. But I'll tell you something. Nobody explained to me that when I went to seminary that if you stay in the same church long enough, you're going to end up burying a lot of your friends. I, I've done a lot of funerals, done a lot of funerals. And it's interesting as a pastor when you're called to lead and speak, but you're also grieving. And so often I, what I'll do before that service, I'll just go up to that casket and I'll just spend a moment looking at that body of that person from our church who's died. And, and part of what I'll say to the Lord in that moment is, thank you, Lord, for their redemption. They're absent from the body, and they're present with you, not because of their works, not because of their righteousness, but because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord, that we're sorrowing, but not, not as those who have no hope. Well, lastly, embrace the purpose of your redemption. You know, I, my job, I, I had to hit two verses, two little verses. You realize I only hit one this morning? I'm going to get fired right, right, right here. So, so let me just mention what you see in verse 14 when it came, comes up again. With a view to the redemption of uh, what? We're God's own possession. Do you know this church has only had five senior pastors in our entire history? That, that, that's pretty amazing. We've only had two the last 49 years. But, but let me be sure that I said this was never Pastor Reed's church. It's never Pastor Lockwood's church. It was never Pastor Vila's church. It was never Pastor Good's church. It's certainly never been Pastor Byer's church. Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. Why is it Jesus' church? Because he bought it. He bought it with what? He bought it with his own blood, or the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And therefore, because he gave himself, here it is, to redeem us, from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Friends, what sweet Boaz was, it's, it's a love story. What sweet Boaz was to Ruth, God stands ready to be to you because he's your kinsman redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this marvelous concept in your word. Father, our sin's been paid 
for, and we've been freed. Thank you for our redemption. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.